This is an ABC podcast. Prison officers who work at Pentridge are not allowed to say what really goes on behind the walls. But the seven or eight ex-prison officers whom we contacted were unanimous that the situation here is serious and becoming worse. Cells hadn't been cleaned up. They were full of faeces and dirt on the walls, that there was masturbation holes in the mattresses for men, but women were just dumped in there. The prison was built in 1851, and some sections have been listed for demolition for some time. Particularly during winter months, complaints are widespread. They're caused mainly by cold, uncomfortable and cramped conditions. This occurs but it's thoroughly depressing because it's so unnatural. Like, you might be in the labour yards and see the sky. That's about all you'll ever see. When Melbourne's Pentridge Prison closed in 1997, it was after decades of criticism about the shocking conditions inside. The governor of Melbourne's Pentridge Prison has hit out strongly at conditions. If I kept pet dogs in yards like this, he said, the RSPCA would have me in court the following morning. Symptoms displayed by staff and prisoners seem to stem from a common cause. The breakdown in discipline is said to be one of the reasons for prisoner violence and their unrest due to some jail conditions. Homicide detectives say the man's body was found by two other prisoners under a bed in the cell of another inmate. He'd been stabbed in the chest and throat and beaten around the head. Hello, I'm Kirsty Melville. And today on The History Listen... Come with us inside the imposing bluestone walls of Pentridge as producer Anna Kelsey Sugg tries to find an answer to a complicated question. When a place with a dark past, like a prison, closes down, what should be done with it? And how much of what happened there should be acknowledged, remembered? And a warning, this episode mentions suicide and contains some graphic scenes of violence and self-harm. It's not one for kids' ears. The 150-year-old Pentridge Prison in Melbourne's northern suburbs was sold off in chunks after the Victorian government closed it in 1997. Private owners added a public playground, cinema, cafes, a supermarket and lots and lots of apartments. Families can let their kids run loose here. The coffee's good. The original bluestone walls are a nice backdrop. But not long ago, this space told a very different story. There are clues if you look closely. A sign near the playground says this spot was the prison's muster yard. Up high, shiny razor wire twists around rusty barbed wire. Inscribed on the floor near the supermarket, there's a quote from a 1954 newspaper about prisoners sleeping on cold floors, sharing a filthy bucket for a toilet. Horrible stuff happened here, beginning in the mid-19th century and continuing into very recent memory. It makes the changes on site here particularly interesting, and there are plenty of mixed feelings about it. I don't believe it's respectful for these areas to be playgrounds, really. I don't. From my perspective, you know, if you're going to make it a new development, make a new development. I felt a bit torn when, when I heard 
what was planned. People died there, horrific deaths there, shocking deaths, slow, horrible, painful deaths. I would say there's a responsibility that comes with the custodians of the site to remember what happened there. In the 1850s, Victoria's gold rush population was booming and crime was rising along with it. In the city, Old Melbourne Jail was getting crowded. So, less than 10 kilometres away, in 1851, Pentridge Prison was established. Inmates broke local bluestone to build their own prison walls. The first men were soon joined by women in a separate area. Until the late 1800s, they were known by number, not name, and spent 23 hours of every day in solitary confinement. The 24th hour was passed in a round airing yard, a panopticon. A guard could stand in the central tower and could have surveillance over prisoners exercising in all the radial yards all the way around. And in Jeremy Bentham's original concept of the panopticon, the guard was basically invisible, so the prisoners never knew when they were being watched, and therefore they assumed they were always being watched, which is another kind of regime of surveillance and control. Naomi Stead is a professor of architecture at Monash University and architecture critic for the Saturday paper. She says the imposing bluestone perimeter walls of Pentridge were designed to deliver a clear message. They were meant to be threatening and uh, menacing and a warning to everyone not to end up in this place, which is a bad place. And that's what the architectural language is all really alluding to. It's about authority and security and punishment, really. There are early stories of prisoners locked in cages, chained in irons, fed just bread and water, and marched to cells wearing hoods. The Mirror, Saturday 3rd of March, 1951. Jean Lee's slim, tanned body was carried limp and fainting from the condemned cell at 8am by the executioner. Her hands were manacled in front and her ankles were strapped together. Her head and face was covered by a white hood. Lee is the first woman to be hanged in Victoria for 56 years. Archaic punishments continued at Pentridge from the 19th century well into the 20th. In February 1951, 31-year-old Jean Lee was executed at Pentridge after being convicted of murder. She was the last woman hanged in Australia. Six years later, in 1957, William John O'Mealy became the last to endure a cat of 9 tails flogging, his punishment for trying to escape. Then, in 1967, Ronald Ryan became the last person to be hanged in Australia. He was 41. The time and date of the execution of Ronald Joseph Ryan was decided in 12 minutes at this morning's meeting of the State Executive Council. Ryan was told of the decision a few minutes later as he waited in the condemned cell at Pentridge Jail. They wouldn't let you touch him. Well, I did kiss him, so I didn't no, I, I let I, I, him I, I, kiss him. <laughs> Will you tell me about that? Will you tell me why they wouldn't let you touch him? Well, they don't like you to have contact with the prisoners. They're afraid you'll give them something or pass something to them, something like that. But tis the rule of the prison that you mustn't have contact. But the opportunity came and I took it. They have managed to 
uh, hang up a noose on the side of the Parliament uh, gates here, and also they've got banners there. This is probably the first time for many, many, many years that Parliament House in Victoria has been attacked in this way. The sentence of death will be carried out at 8 a.m. on Friday, the 3rd of February, 1967. By the early 1970s, prisoner rebellions were bringing attention to the conditions of life inside Pentridge. And on the outside, activist groups were doing the same. Student activist Barry York was sent to Pentridge when he was 21. His crime? Contempt of court, after he protested at La Trobe University, then defied an order not to enter its grounds. It became clear very quickly that in 1972 it was still essentially a 19th century jail. There was an, a real need for a whole lot of reforms. H was the maximum security punishment place within the maximum security Pentridge jail. I can tell you I... <laughs> At night, you know, lying on the bed, looking up at the, the little window with the bars. Several times over the six weeks, I heard the men being bashed in H Division. You, you would hear the thuds, the kicks, the screams, men screaming out, uh, stop. And uh, that was the screws in H Division who had a terrible reputation for sadism. And they were big blokes. They were beating up the uh, prisoners. And um, that was part of the routine that has been well documented. And that I like to think that the rebellion by the inmates with their supporters on the outside, like the Prisoners Action Committee that I took a part in uh, leading, uh, after my release, that we helped to end that kind of ritualistic bashing that was known as the bash. It had a name. Inquiry into allegations of ill-treatment at Her Majesty's Prison Pentridge. The board's findings as to whether since 22nd May 1970. A number of the prisoners were struck in the presence of a senior prison officer. Ten prisoners were unlawfully struck on their bodies with bashing. On none of the occasions did the prison officer demand cessation of the ill treatment. Repeatedly punched on the head and the body by three prison officers in the presence of the chief prison officer. When I escaped with Ronnie Ryan and we were caught and came back here and uh, I spent the next seven and a half years straight down in H Division with 18 months of that in the labour yards, uh, almost virtually solitary confinement. In a 1975 ABC TV documentary, inmates under decades-long sentences describe life at Pentridge. You had to break three barrel loads of rock thumbnail size a day 
every man I spoke to had a hate filled in his heart because of the treatment he received there. When I first come to the jail, uh, it was uh, very hard and tough. You had to be a man to uh, survive. Uh, you slept on the floor. You had no uh, mattress or sheets. You was getting uh, poly twice a day and one hot meal in the lunchtime. We're permitted to have half-hour visits on a, on a two-week schedule so that we find out that we're only permitted to spend 13 hours a year with our family. And, and that 13 hours, the visit with a family, is carried out in the visiting boxes with partitions between us. In the late 1970s and early 80s, Graham Alford spent six years in three stints at Pentridge Prison, the last for armed robbery. He tells me Pentridge helped him to get sober and get his life back on track. But his time in jail was by no means a walk in the park. You got up at seven o'clock into the yards, they brought you back in for breakfast. Uh, you came in for lunch about 11. And then you went back into the yards and you came back in about 3.30, called to four for tea. And then you went back into the yards and they'd lock you up about five o'clock. And then you wouldn't come back out till seven the next morning. Correct. You can imagine in winter it was freezing cold. Um, in summer it was okay because the blue stone didn't let the heat in. But like I'd often during winter you'd get into bed and I'd have two pairs of socks on and a long johns and it'd take two hours for your feet to thaw out so you could feel your toes. Yeah, look, you get used to it, but it was, uh, it was fairly primitive, certainly primitive compared to what there is today. They had a phone visit once a fortnight and if you had uh, not played up and you're okay, you were able to get contact visits, they called them, in a little garden area there in the back of D Division. Every, I don't know, two months you could have a contact visit for an hour. That's phenomenally infrequent family contact. How hard was that? Very. My mother was very sick the last time and um, uh, so, you, you know, you could spend uh, two weeks not knowing how she was or what was happening before the phone call. I wrote letters profusely. I'd, I'd be writing half a dozen letters a week to people I knew just in the hope they'd write back, and most of them did. When you got a letter, it was terrific. You'd read it ten times. In 1956, after much lobbying, women had been moved out of Pentridge into a new women's prison, Fairley. But in 1982, when a fire broke out there, women were temporarily moved back to Pentridge. Their conditions in the jail sparked a public outcry. If all this has happened in such a short amount of time, one woman's already dead, it's inevitable, given the shocking conditions in there, that the women can't cope. The first day I was, thing. I think, in There's the no annex, I came, uh, one of the women hung herself because um, she was really frightened, didn't want to be there. I still get lumps, a lump in the throat. Because they were in a men's prison, so they were given, you know, secondhand men's clothing to wear. There was a lot of allegations of sexual assault and sexual harassment. Increasing women's self-mutilation, self-harming, that's a very desperate act to take, which means that something very desperate had happened for women to start injuring themselves. Once someone's locked up, they're incredibly vulnerable. 
My name's Jane, Jane Bennett. I worked quite a long time in um, Pentridge Prison. I was a social worker there in the first therapeutic drug and alcohol community. And um, I'm a, a Wurundjeri woman and uh, Pentridge is in Wurundjeri land. So I'm quite proud to be speaking to you today. Jane says good and bad coexisted at Pentridge. She wants both to be acknowledged and understood today. It was a pretty dark culture. It could be quite frightening at times and at at the same time, I think a lot of staff were doing their best to make it safe, a little bit less frightening. Jane remembers feeling nervous when a transgender woman was sent to Pentridge, but she says staff and other prisoners worked hard to make sure she was safe. We had a very caring chief prison officer. He was incredibly good at his job, incredibly kind. What we did was we organised separate shower times and a separate cell. And um, I wasn't sure how it would go, but from what I could gather, and I spent a lot of time with her, she felt at home, she felt quite safe. And a lot of effort went into that. She kept her pride, um, she held her head high. I think also, um, we haven't talked all about Aboriginal people. I think there was quite a lot of racism, but I do believe there were people that were doing their utmost most to protect Aboriginal people. I would advocate, but so would other people. Some of the racism was dished out behind inmates' backs, but they were quick to pick up on it. People forget these people survived stuff we couldn't survive. They're smart, they're streetwise, they're strong and they're intelligent, they're not dumb. I'm shaking talking to you about it because there were some very dark times there. Self-harming, for example, was a very common thing, it still is. I remember going to an inmate's cell and there was blood everywhere and I sat with them and they said, Jane, the physical pain is helping me to distract from the emotional pain. Saturday night, and I'm with my mother-in-law, Barb, at Pentridge's D Division. We've come to join one of the regular ghost tours that run through the old cells here. In the nearly 25 years since the prison closed, tourist opportunities like this one have popped up. There's a multi-storey hotel being built, and a second is on the books. (laughs) (laughs) Professor Naomi Stead specialises in the cultural studies of architecture. She says tourism around violent history is sometimes referred to as dark heritage or heritage that hurts, and it's ethically complicated. Basically, it has to do with heritage of difficult, problematic, or some might even say impossible histories, dissonant, contested, painful, um, traumatic potentially as well, which can really take in a huge range of things, including um, carceral histories like we see uh, at Pentridge. It can also take in, for example, the sites of concentration camps or war atrocities, or in Australia, it takes in many sites of colonial um, activity and colonial violence. And it's linked with so-called fanatourism or dark tourism, which is big and getting bigger, where people actively seek to visit these places. So first things first, my name is Keegan. I am your gatekeeper for tonight. That means I'm in charge of locking you in and letting you out. 
So if you don't do something online, we'll leave you in there. No, I won't. I've actually got a tour tonight, so can't leave you in tonight. Um, first things first, can everyone please pop their phones on silent? Our tour group moves up and down metal staircases, into tiny cells and under the gallows where Lee, Ryan and eight others were hanged. At one point, we're invited to try to spot ghosts and one of the guides yells boo at a fitting moment. As we move on, everyone starts listening again. Pentridge isn't the only historic prison in Australia to have ghost tours. The difference here, though, is that you'll pass a childcare centre, wine bar and apartment block on your way back outside the walls. Port Arthur, for example, it's a museum of itself. People go there in order to see the remnants of a historic prison and to understand it in context. It's heritage-driven tourism, whereas I think what's different about Pentridge is that it's no longer a historic prison that remains a historic prison. It's a historic prison that's being turned into something very, very different. Not everyone is happy about that. What you've got with Pentridge is a mishmash and it's almost too late to do anything about it. Annalie Oikens is a historian with a heritage background and she's lived near Pentridge for more than 20 years. She's experienced the redevelopment firsthand. She's not opposed to it per se, but she argues, unlike other prisons, say Fremantle's, where the heritage site has been preserved, the focus at Pentridge is no longer the prison itself. And that, she says, is a great loss. Pentridge is one of the major historical prisons of Australia. I think the problem with the site is it's confused. It's got these heritage buildings, it's got residential. It now has retail, a supermarket with the cinemas on top. It's really not clear to me what it's supposed to do. I mean, the council clearly would like it to function as a tourism site and so obviously with the National Trust. But then we have this idea of residential packed in. And from what I've seen of other sites, this has not happened anywhere else quite like this before. Part of the problem, as Annalie sees it, is the lack of a museum at Pentridge, which she believes would help preserve the prison's history. That's something she feels is at risk of being lost to redevelopment. There was an announcement, a media release back in 1999, that there should be a museum. That museum has not happened the community around Pentridge and the public at large should really push for a proper museum. And by proper, I mean one that doesn't cover up the brutality and ill treatment and that recognises the importance of the rebellion that took place by the prisoners that really forced a lot of change and um, I'm worried that those ingredients won't be represented in a museum, but uh, we'll wait and see. I guess one of the challenges of a site like this is really to what extent people should be made to confront these difficult histories or, or the extent to which they should be allowed to just skate right over them and be unaware or oblivious. It's really difficult and it goes to the very heart of the problematics that Australia is wrestling with right now. You know, we have so many of these sites in Australia. They are retained in so many of our place names, Massacre Creek and such things. And it's pretty horrifying, really, actually, how many dark heritage sites there are in Australia and the way white Australians post-colonisation have been oblivious to these sites of atrocity. A visitor centre is on the way for Pentridge, set to open in spring 2022. 
Just how the centre will look hasn't yet been decided, but perhaps it'll fulfil the role of a museum. Time will tell. I mean, there is a fair bit of, of heritage interpretation on the site now. It's obviously been taken with a very light touch. There's nice little heritage devices like inlaid text in the ground surface and, and in, you know, bits of um, built-in furniture and so forth. But I noticed, like, the little quotes that were picked out, they're universally very anodyne. The buildings spread over about one half of this area are built of solid masonry. The stones are cut, dressed and chiselled with such artistic skill. Flowers, grass and neatly trimmed borders and hedges were looking their very best. You know, it's not the, the dark part of the, the floggings and the ritual humiliation and, and indeed state-sanctioned murder, which is a thing that happened on the site. You know, I guess that's a bit unpalatable when people are going about their everyday lives, but also considering buying an apartment. It is hard to know, though, what is the right way to deal with such a dark place. Like, it's genuinely difficult. That's one of the principal tensions here between the heritage community and its commercial redevelopment from a, a developer who has bought the site for a very large amount of money and has every right, legal and otherwise, to redevelop it so that it continues to have a life. But of course, that's always a real tension. Heritage historian Annalie Oikens. At the moment, we have a 19-storey block of flats approaching completion. There's also an 18-storey hotel apartment combination being built. And I, said, I think this has astounded everyone. And it really has no support in the community. Those magnificent bluestone walls that are listed have had so many openings cut into them. I mean, one person once referred to them that they're now like Swiss cheese. And that really irritates me. You know, one could weep for those, especially since those prisoners built it. But to me, that's an indicative thing that that's just gone ahead. On one hand, you know, emotionally, I'd like to see the place torn down or blown up, one or the other, you know. And I know that some people felt that the whole building should have been preserved in its entirety. But I think what's happened from a distance uh, seems to be a compromise between those two positions. I think it'd be incorrect if I said, I don't think it should be apartments. I don't think it should, but it is. So that, that ship sailed. And in particular, that is Wurundjeri land, that's Aboriginal land. I also think it's the land of people of non-Aboriginal descent who, who, who lost their souls there. It's obviously uh, a great space, it's close to the city. Well, I think it's fine. I mean, there's no way known I'd buy a place there. And why is that? Oh, it just it would bring back memories. I just, uh, memories I don't need. There were some unique characters there that would, would find the smallest things to give them joy. It wasn't a very kind place. It was, a, it was cold, it was tough, it was bloody, it was cruel, yet there was a lot of kindness there and it's a beautiful thing, don't let that die.
The Violent Past and Complicated Present of Pentridge Prison was produced by Anna Kelsey Sugg with sound engineering by Tim Simons. And if this program has raised any issues for you, then please do call Lifeline 24-7. Their number, 13 14 11. I'm Kirsty Melville, and I'll catch you next time on The History Listen. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.